70,000 organized workers respectfully insist continuation of the women's division of the Labor Department. Necessary protection, women, workers, and standardization of labor conditions. The Bureau has done splendid work during the war, but it is more necessary to working women during Reconstruction, largely as a result of league pressured and lobbying, the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor was established on a permanent basis. For the League and the Bureau had similar problems, both were small and poorly funded, neither was able to compel industry to obey its recommendations or to force male-led unions to treat women workers fairly, and neither became an effective force during the 1920s are for the solution of the problems of women workers. While Mayor Anderson and her colleagues were urging increased participation by women in union affairs, she herself was instructing her staff to keep at specific unions that discriminated blatantly at women. She complained to A.J. Ben, a secretary of the AFL Metal Department, condemning the International Mulder Union for the practice of expelling any member who instructed a woman in foundry work. Women would continue to enter the trades. Anderson warned Ben, and men ought to realize that they too would benefit from effective organization of their female co-workers. Both the WTUL and the Women's Bureau failed to take on the issues of race. Both were accused of supporting socialism and communism. Yet the only evidence ever presented to support these claims was the League's revised constitution of 1922 that urged that war be banned and that women co-workers of all countries work closely together, that they campaign for the child labor amendment to the constitution, that they join with the other liberal groups to act as a clearinghouse for legislative efforts and to lobby reform legislation. The WTUL and the Women's Bureau were accused of being part of a vast conspiracy by Lucy Maxwell that she called the Spiderweb, partly because they were involved in the summer school for working women in industry established at Bryn Mawr College in 1921 under the direction of Dean Hilda Smith, a former social worker. Half the members of the school's board of directors were labor leaders and the other half were college people. This 50-50 representation was endorsed by the student workers who also advocated the admission of black working women as students. Both suggestions were approved over the initial opposition of Dr. M. Carey Thomas, president of Myanmar, and herself one of the initiators of the summer school. The black women were admitted to the summer school, but at first they were segregated in a separate hall. The student workers consulted with Hilda Smith and thereafter the black women were integrated with the rest of the student body. The women workers who attended Myanmar summer school became leaders in their communities when they returned home and many of them were instrumental in establishing evening classes for working women in their home communities. Fanny Cohn was a graduate of the first WTUL labor class in 1914. She was appointed to the position of organizing secretary when ILGWU established a general education committee in 1916. In 1918, she was appointed educational director of the ILGWU, serving on its executive board from 1916 to 1928. 
and was the first female vice president of a major international union. The Union and Women's Labor Program, few provisions in their reconstruction program dealt with either organization or the labor movement. The same could be said of the first International Congress of Working Women, which met in late October and early November 1919. Opening the Congress, Margaret Dreyer Robbins made a telling point when she noted, women had no direct share in the terms of the peace treaty. It's a man-made peace. Women had no direct share in the labor platform, with its emphasis on the protection in industry rather than its emphasis on the participation of women in plans to protect themselves, which is significant of the attitude of men, even in the labor movement towards women. Therefore, we, a group of Negro women representing those two million of Negro women wage earners, respectfully asked for your active cooperation in organizing the Negro woman workers of the United States into unions, that they may have a share in bringing about industrial democracy and social order in the world. Apart from applauding, the Congress did nothing about it. The U.S. Senate refusal to ratify the Barcelles Treaty limited the effectiveness of the International Labor Organization, since its success was linked to American participation in the League of Nations. This time, the National Women's Trade Union League tried to fill the gap by making the International Congress of Working Women a permanent association of women workers. In Geneva, in October 1921, delegates were present from 12 nations, and they changed the name of the Congress to the International Federation of Working Women, adopted a constitution, and elected Margaret Dreyer Robbins of the National Women's Trade Union League as president. The declared objective of the Federation was to unite organizing women in order that they may resolve upon the means by which the standard of the life of the workers throughout the world may best be raised. This time, priority was given to trade unionism, and the Federation's goal was first to promote a trade union organization among women and then to develop an international policy that gave special consideration to the needs of women and children. Secondly, it was to examine all projects for legislation proposed to the International Labor Conference of the League of Nations, and finally, it was to promote the appointment of working women to organizations affecting the welfare of workers. Assuming the presidency, Robbins declared that the first task of working women of the world was to make war against war. The first battle in that war, she continued, is to stop increasing armaments. Armaments breed war, she stated, that unemployment or capitalism must go. In 1922, Robbins resigned as president of the National Women's Trade Union League in order to devote more of her time and money to the International Federation of Working Women. She was succeeded by Maud O'Farrell Schwartz, a native of Ireland. As the year 1920 closed and the new decade got underway, the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor reported that many women are not included in the membership of the big international unions. 8% of the trade union membership was now female, with 6.6% of working women organized. The International Molders Union signed a pledge with a ton of other unions recognizing and supporting the right of working people of the United States to organize into trade unions. But they and the Journeyman Barbers International Union expressly excluded women from
from membership. Secretary Morrison wrote in answer to a question, the American Federation of Labor would have authority to issue charters to women members of a trade only where such course would be authorized by the international organization having jurisdiction. How this worked was illustrated in the case of the women barbers of Seattle, who, denied membership in the Barbers Union, asked the AFL for a separate charter and were refused because the Barbers Union objected. The women barbers received a charter from the Seattle Labor Council, but other women workers who were excluded from international unions were not so fortunate. Aroused by these developments, the executive board of the NWTUL appointed a committee to confer with the AFL Executive Council to discuss the issuance of charters to groups of women not admitted to membership in the international unions of their trade. The committee met with the Executive Council on August 23, 1921, but nothing came of the discussions other than the suggestion by Gompers that a conference be held with those internationals that excluded women. But the League was not willing to rely on vague promises. Instead, it met with a group of women delegates to the 1921 AFL Convention and helped form the Women's Committee for Industrial Equality. A resolution was drawn up to amend the AFL Constitution it was introduced by Delegate Ethel Haig, a tobacco worker. It read, Nothing in this Constitution shall be construed as recognition of any right on the part of the American Federation of Labor or any affiliated union or of any officer of such unions to deny or abridge the right of workers to membership and to all the privileges of membership in the union of their trade or industry on account of sex and women in a trade under the jurisdiction of a union which does not admit women to membership on the same terms as men shall not be denied a separate and direct charter from the American Federation of Labor for lack of consent of that union. The Industrial Equality Amendment produced an interesting discussion and a number of male delegates spoke out in its behalf, but the AFL leadership would have none of it, claiming that exclusion was a result not of prejudice but of the fact that women were not suited for work in the trades that banned them. The Committee on Laws introduced a substitute resolution which read, one, resolved that the international national organizations that do not admit women workers give early consideration to such admission. The convention then rejected a floor amendment calling upon the AFL itself to charter locals if affiliate prohibited female members and it went on to accept the committee's resolution by a vote of 164 to 73. The committee changed its name to the National Women's Union at the 1922 AFL convention. Mary Hellas, fraternal delegate, drew up a resolution calling upon the AFL Executive Council to issue charters directly to women in occupations in which the unions refused to admit women to membership. She then had Luther Seward, president of the National Federation of Federal Employees, introduce it. The committee on law reported a revised resolution to the convention. It opened with fulsome praise of the AFL as having since its inception done everything in its power to organize women workers of the country and to obtain for them equal rights, political as well as economical, since it claimed only a few international unions refused to admit women to 
membership due largely to the nature of their work, the revised resolution proposed that the Executive Council take up the subject with the trade unions involved and endeavor to reach an understanding as to the issuance of federal charters. The revised resolution was quickly adopted. How little was to be gained by this approach became clear soon after the convention. The women barbers in Seattle applied to the AFL for a federal charter on the basis of the 1922 resolution. At first it was granted, but it was then recalled after a vehement protest by the International Barbers Union. At that point, the whole procedure was abandoned. It did appear that the Federation was finally beginning to move in 1923 after the Supreme Court invalidated a District of Columbia minimum wage law for women. The AFL reacted by raising the need for a unionization drive among working women, asserting that if they cannot be protected by law, we should protect by organization. Gompers invited 45 unions to a national conference in February 1924. At this conference, a discussion was held about the agencies that had already existed to help the women workers. Gompers practically called for the WTUL to be dissolved. In its place, he suggested the establishment under his direct supervision of an AFL women's bureau that would include a female executive officer and that would lead a joint organizational campaign financed by member unions. Less than three weeks later, Gomper sent his secretary Florence Anderson to find out if the league could be persuaded to go out of business. In a letter Gomper signed by its executive council, the league pledged its willingness to coordinate its effort with those of the AFL. The letter concluded, The fact that there are, according to the Women's Bureau of the United States Department of Labor, 3,156,000 women working at trades which come within the jurisdiction of the national and international organizations affiliated to the American Federation of Labor, and that the records of the American Federation of Labor show no more than 200,000 of this number in the membership of the AFL, is a telling comment upon the overwhelming difficulties besetting the task of the organization of women. We believe that the coordination of effort in this direction under an able woman executive is the most important step that could be taken, and we gladly pledge the resources and the machinery of the National Women's Trade Union League in aid of this undertaking. The proposed Women's Bureau never became a reality. Of 45 unions invited to the first meeting, only 13 sent representatives and they objected to a women's bureau as an infringement on trade union autonomy. The executive council then proposed that the only way the AFL could deal with the issue of organizing the unorganized women worker, that the AFL can promote the organization of women in industry by making available informational sources and material, and by carrying on the educational work necessary to a better understanding of the problem of women in industry and the necessity for constructive action. Ironically, by 1924, not only were the five international unions that barred women from membership still continue the practice, but a number of other internationals publicly acknowledged that they officially opposed the admission of women. These include the Teamsters, Chauffeurs, the Brotherhood of Blacksmiths, Drop Forgers, and the United Mine Workers.
been at its 1925 convention, the Executive Council authorized the new president, William Green, to work out a plan for the unionization of women workers. The plan was for various locals in a given area to make a joint intensive drive to organize women under their jurisdiction. The campaign was initiated in the summer of 1926 and centered in Newark, New Jersey under the direction of the AFL's legislative agent and top organizer, Edward McGrady. But the campaign received only nominal support and insight into the reason for the failure is provided by McGrady's attitude. When he was approached by two experienced WTUL activists with an offer to assist in the drive, he informed them that women could not be organized. Women do not want to be organized. Women had been organized at great trouble and expense and their unions had not lasted. The offer to assist in the New York campaign was coldly rejected. The Supreme Court struck down legislation providing for maximum hours for workers on the grounds that it denied workers the right to make their own contract of employment. In Mueller v. Oregon, 1908, however, the court sustained a similar legislation applying only to women workers, asserting that women's physical structure and the performance of maternal functions place her at a disadvantage is obvious. The two sexes differ in structure of body in the functions to be performed by each, in the amount of physical strength, in the capacity for long continued labor, particularly when done standing. The influence of vigorous health upon the future well-being of the race, the self-reliance which enables one to assert full rights, and in the capacity to maintain the struggle for subsistence. In 1921, the NWP turned its major attention to proposed equal rights amendments to the Constitution. The amendment was very simple. It read, no political, civil, or legal disabilities are, are inequalities on account of sex nor on account of marriage unless applying equally to both sexes shall exist within the United States or any territory thereof. The League's convention that most women workers did not oppose protective legislation was substantiated to its satisfaction in 1927 when the Consumers League of New York found in a survey that four out of five women questioned supported a law limiting a woman's working hours to 48 hours a week. But the National Women's Party repeatedly dismissed such evidence. Ethel Smith, speaking for the WTUL, said, for one reason or another, do not organize into labor bodies as effective as men. They are, in a good many instances, just transients on the job. It is not life work for them. Because of that, their labor strength cannot be compared with men. They cannot go to employers and make agreements for themselves. To keep them from being exploited, different states pass labor legislation. The minimum wage law is one. The eight-hour day is another. Without these laws, women might still be working life-killing hours at miserable wages. The battle between the friends and foes of protective legislation for women was launched in earnest in 1923. The Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor called a conference on women in industry early in January 1923 in Washington. Mary Anderson, the Bureau's chief, invited Alice Paul up for the National Women's Party to attend, but when Paul asked for a place in the conference program, Anderson informed her that this was impossible because of the large number of organizations that had already been given places.
Thereupon, the NWP and the Women's League for Equal Opportunity accused Anderson of allowing the presentation of only those views that supported the theory that working women need special legislation, and both organizations urged Congress to refuse funds for the conference. Congress, however, rejected their request, and the conference went forward without representation of both organizations. Then in February 1923, the Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings on the Lucretia Mott R. Equal Rights Amendment. Fifteen women opponents of the amendment, representing more than a dozen organizations, spoke for two hours, arguing that the proposed measure among the speakers who attacked the amendment were such veteran activists as Melinda Scott, Rose Schneiderman, Mary Van Cleek, Agnes Nestor, Florence Kelly, and Nellie Schwartz. Nellie made a deep impression on the committee when she said, what if it should take longer to secure equal rights for women by dealing with discrimination separately? Would it not be better to take a little longer than to inflict upon millions of working women the sufferings that would be involved by destruction of the laws which now give them decent hours and working conditions? The working women are not so much concerned about property rights, they have no property. The National Women's Party does not know what it is to work 10 or 12 hours a day in a factory, so they do not know what it means to lose an 8-hour day or a 9-hour day law. The working women do know, and that is why they are unanimously opposing this amendment. We have worked for many years to get our labor laws for women, and we have had much litigation to establish them. Agnes Nestor stated, we do not want to have to do this all over again, especially when all that this amendment purports to do can be done without incurring such consequences. Three spokespersons for the National Women's Party appeared at the hearing, but outnumbered as they were by the opponents, they refused to testify, pleading instead for a postponement. It was clear from the proceedings, however, and from the statement of the committee members that the amendment was, for the time being, at least dead. It was not long before the foes of protective legislation for women scored a victory. On May 25, 1920, the Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C. petitioned to set aside an award of the minimum wage board fixing the lowest rates for women workers in hospitals and hotels at $16.50 per week. Florence Kelly brought Felix Frankfurter and Mary Dusen into the legal proceedings in support of the minimum wage board decision. The former served as co-counsel and the latter furnished evidence justifying the minimum wage legislation. One of the telling points made by the defense was that various industrial surveys, especially that by the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics in 1920, which covered the earnings of half a million women, revealed that despite wartime wage increases, from one quarter to one third of the employees in such trades as cigar manufacturing, candy making, and silk weaving, received less than subsistence wages. Counsel for the district board argued that minimum wage laws were both necessary and effective in relieving the exploitation of women operatives. The court ruled that minimum wage law was constitutional. The district court of appeals then rendered two decisions. The first, on July 6, 1924, upheld the constitutionality of the law by a vote of two to one. But a year later, the full court decided against the law by a similar note. The case was then argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled on April 9, 
1923 by 5 to 3 against the constitutionality of the law. The court majority based its position on the right of private contracts, insisting that while laws could be enforced to regulate working conditions, the employer and employee must be free of any restraint in determining between themselves what wages are acceptable. Schneiderman declared that the women wage earners need not accept any wage cuts if they stand together like men for a single day. Women's work, she went on, was just as valuable as men's. It must be compensated as highly and would be if only women organized. Then she lashed out at the idea of always being a poor working girl is nonsense. There is no reason why a working girl should be poor. Men bakers, for instance, who are organized, Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.